So we're dealing with limited atonement. And we're moving on, and this morning what I want to speak about is unbelief. And of course, when we talk about unbelief, we must speak of belief also. We're going to examine in this section some of the arguments that are posed against limited atonement having to do with belief and unbelief. And we're going to see what scripture says and what uh, great theologians of our past have said about this. So there's an often heard argument that I want to start with that will set the stage for what we're going to examine this morning. And you've perhaps heard this in, in one form or another. And someone may argue that the atonement is an actual atonement. So it's actual for all the world. Well, that sounds like universalism, but there's a twist to this one. <clears throat> the person with this argument will say, this, this is what I believe about atonement. It's actual and it's for all people in the world, but not all are saved. Here we get a slight departure from the standard universalist argument. They're not saved, not because their sins are not atoned for. The person may argue, well, their sins are atoned for. Jesus accomplished the atonement for them. But here's the problem why they are not saved is they do not believe in Jesus and therefore will not accept the gospel. So here's the, the central part, I would say, of the argument that it's because of their unbelief that they're not saved. <clears throat> so we, we see here, again, don't we, a shifting of the sovereignty uh, back to the, the person. And as we progress through the doctrines of grace, we are going to address a doctrine that specifically speaks to this. But this is a good time to speak a little bit about it because of the importance of atonement and also we might say unconditional election because those two are, are really um, linked. So let me put this in other words. We're talking to a friend of ours who uh, ha holds Arminian beliefs, let's say. And our Arminian friend says, let me explain it this way to you. Salvation's like a gift, and no one can be forced to accept a gift, right? In the same way, the world's been saved. This gift has been given to the world by, you know, God the Father through the Son and empowered by the Spirit. 
So the world's been saved, but many will not be saved because they've rejected this gift. They will not believe on Jesus. Well, I would say, you know, at, at first glance, first hearing, and, and using human reasoning, that sounds pretty reasonable. I, I would admit to, to that. And if I was not familiar with what God's scriptures say, I might accept that. Because, yeah, I could, I, could see, I could see your point in that. Until we explore the nature of unbelief, which is what we intend on doing this morning, so we have a better understanding of the holes in this well-intentioned argument. So here's the question we need to answer. I'm going to need some, we need some writing room here, so. Speaking of unbelief. Is unbelief a morally neutral choice? Or is unbelief a sin? I think that this is the crux of the whole in the argument that our friend proposes to us. Sounds to me like my friend is speaking from an understanding of unbelief being a morally neutral choice, merely deciding to accept or not to accept salvation. It reduces this to um, a, a common everyday sort of human activity where we choose, you know, we go through the day choosing things, don't we? What we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, etc., etc. And it, it, it kind of levels, it flattens out all of um, our choices. So, <clears throat> these are the two choices. I say unbelief is a sin. And it's the most damning of all sins. And it's not just me that says that, or if you happen to agree with me, it's not just us who believe this. It's what Scripture tells us. And I'm going to give you some proofs. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, 12, the author of Hebrews tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews is putting unbelief in the category of evil that is against God. 
that prevents us from having the relationship with God that is part of our salvation. Probably, I would say, the, the best known passage for this we find in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. And this is one that is, you know, that, that there are different interpretations of it, but, they, but I, I believe, I hold that it is referring to um, this idea of unbelief, the rejection of the work of the triune God in salvation. And it is very strong in the opinion here. Matthew 12, 31, Christ is talking and he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What our Lord is speaking of here is unbelief. Unbelief connected to the lack of repentance, refusal to heed God's command to repent. Think of the first public statement made by the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry that we read at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. What does our Lord say? Repent. John the Baptist, when he begins preparing the way for the Lord, what does John the Baptist say? Repent. So the refusal to repent, the refusal to accept this, I think is what our Lord is, is speaking about here. So as um, undoubtedly, and, and I, look, I look in the, in the room here and I see uh, uh, many mature uh, Christians here uh, but, but perhaps there's, there's some that are new to the faith or, or don't know the faith that well that are, that are listening. Um, so uh, there are many that, that, that are frightened unnecessarily by this verse that because they don't see this unforgivable sin explained explicitly, they worry about them falling into this sin and never being able to obtain forgiveness. Well, as, as many very good preachers and theologians before me have said, and I'll repeat what they've said, if you're worried about that, then you don't need to worry about that. It's those who are in complete rejection of that that the Lord is speaking of. And lastly, to prove that unbelief is a sin, we can look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And there, there's a list of sins that are given. And I won't read the whole list, but in Revelation 21.8, we are told, but as for the, and I'll, I'll skip one, for the faithless in the ESV, uh, some English translations will say unbelievers, but as for the faithless or unbelievers, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So in these three uh, scripture passages that we've looked at, it's very clear that, that unbelief is a sin. And we need to establish that to move forward in this argument. So if Jesus died for the sins of all men, as our friend is proposing in his argument, 
a form of universalism, then all men are saved, right? If Jesus died for all men, then all men are saved. So we know that there's a problem with universalism, but, but let's see what the problem with this statement about, you know, our friend categorizing the unbelief, John 3.18. And that's in that famous passage of Scripture where the Lord Jesus is, comes at night and is talking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And there's that famous um, uh, apologetic evangelistic verse 316, and, and a lot of people stop with that and don't go beyond it. But we want to go beyond it. We'll look at what 318 says. 318 says, and the Lord is speaking here, he says, whoever believes in him, and he's speaking of himself, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemnation coupled with unbelief there. I want to address or, or share what that great Puritan theologian John Owen said about this. He addressed this in his, in his classic treatise, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And here he's demonstrating that universal atonement is unbiblical and therefore antithetical against the gospel. And Owen lays out the options like this. And I'm quoting here from Owen. And if you've read or tried to read Owen, he, he is difficult. He's one of the more difficult um, Puritan uh, clergyman that, that I've encountered to, to, to follow. Um, but I'm going to restate after I read his quote. I'll restate what he said. So um, if you're scratching your head when I read this stuff, this is his uh, grammatical, grammatical construction of his sentences sometimes are hard to follow. So this is Owen's words. God imposed his wrath due unto and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either all the sins of all men, all sins for all men, there's universalism raising its head again, or another option, all the sins of some men which is particular redemption, limited atonement, or some sins Some sins of all men. Well, I propose that this argument we're dealing with is trying to take this option here. Some sins of all men. Because we're talking about the, the sin of unbelief, right? We determined that that's a sin. That has to be dealt with. <clears throat> so if, if it's this last option, Owen says... Some sins of all men, if it's that, then all men have some sins to answer for. 
So, no one is saved. It was all for naught. We can see this is clearly false, can't we? We know that's not true. Otherwise, there's no sense even publishing, printing, and, and binding this book. So what about the first option? Owen says this is the position of the universalist. Christ died for all the sins of all men. And then he engages in a hypothetical dialogue on this issue. Why are not all free from the punishment of their sins? And he says you, referring to someone who holds this view, you will say because of their unbelief, they will not believe. See, there's our argument right there that we're dealing with. Then Owen poses this question, but, but this unbelief, is it a sin or not? Which we examine. And if it's not, if unbelief's not a sin, Owen asks, why should they be punished for it? If it is a sin, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it. Or didn't he? Owen asks. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he, the Lord, died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then did he not die for all their sins? Let them choose which part they will. Now, as you can see to our, to our modern minds, this is, this is kind of hard to follow. So let me restate it, and, and hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll help um, to understand the, the point, the very important point that John Owen is making. Here it is. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, unbelief included, then all are saved. Universalism. Which we've seen and we know the Bible denies that, right? So if Jesus died for all the sins of all men, unbelief excluded, which Jesus covered everything except unbelief in his atonement, what Owens is saying, then he, then he did not die for the sins of anybody and all must be condemned. We know that that is not scriptural. We know that's not true. So there's no other position except the one of particular redemption, limited atonement. He died for the sin of his elect people only. This is what Owen, that's the point Owen is trying to get across here. So, <clears throat> All well and good, you may say. Ken, you've presented us with uh, a logical argument. We appreciate that. You told us what uh, men from many centuries ago have said about it. We appreciate that. But what does the word of God say? Well, my friend, that is a very good question and one that we must address, must we not? Because the best argument in the world, I would say, holds no water if we do not find biblical support for it or we find that the Bible says something contrary to our stellar logical 
reasoning. I've had to read a lot of philosophy in school. Philosophers who I would say are probably much smarter than me and they get a lot of stuff wrong. If you've read philosophy, I'm sure you've seen that also. So, let's see what God's word tells us. And these are representative texts. First turn to Isaiah 53, 8. Isaiah 53, 8. Let's see what the prophet has to say here. Isaiah says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. The Lord God is speaking of my people. Not speaking of the people, not speaking of all people, speaking of my people. <clears throat> Matthew 1, 21. Matthew 1, 21. Here the Lord Jesus is, is well, no, it's, 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 it's the birth narrative. Excuse me. <clears throat> so the, uh, the angel is addressing the parents, the earthly parents of Jesus. And he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people. Again, not all people. Luke 20, excuse me, I skipped one. Matthew 20, 28. Here the Lord is speaking, and he says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a definite act here that that the Lord Jesus is speaking of. It's not a possible act. It's not like this may happen. It's performed for a large number of people, right? Many, but not all people. So I think Scripture well attests to the fact that many, many will be saved. And I pray that many more will be saved than, than I think are going to be saved. Because our God is a God of great mercy. Um, but not all people will be saved. Otherwise, we would see something different in that passage. Luke 1, 68. Luke 1, 68 says, Blessed be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. 
Again, speaking of a specific group. Notice the terms for the atonement that we've looked at, ransomed, redeemed, how we're finding them here. John 10.11, very well-known passage. John 10.11, the Lord states, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How do we see particularness in this term, the sheep? Because using these terms, these metaphorical terms that scripture uses, we know there are other categories other than sheep, don't we? Not all people are described as sheep. Some are described as goats. Others are described as wolves. So this is specific to a certain category of people. John 10, 26. The Lord says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So we've gone from the sheep to my sheep. The Lord has a specific flock. He's talking about his flock right here. Not that there are, well, he talks about sheep that are they're elsewhere, right? That he will gather in. Um, so it's, it goes from the ship, sheep to my sheep. I just want to, I want you to see how he's narrowing and he's, he's further expanding and explaining on this group here by this statement. John 13, 1. John 13, 1 reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, his own who were in the world he loved them to the end so love requires an object right when you love you love a specific thing so the object to this to the Lord's love is these specific, it's them, it's those that he calls his own. The specific people given to him by God the Father. And, you know, uh, we, ref- we can reference John six thirty seven with this, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
there's a giving of this group by the Father to the Son. Another passage from John, I ask you to consider John 17, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. Which, which reads, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you will give him. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The Lord Jesus is telling us that this, these groups that we're talking about here that he refers to is not the world. In other words, it's not everybody. There are some that are excluded just by the grammar of the, 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 uh, the words that our Lord uses. And, and we're specifically, the Lord's specifically refuting universal, universalist salvation uh, in this. I think I'm running out of room here. See if I can get it. Galatians 3.13. Please turn there. We'll, we'll look at, at uh, some of the writings of the apostles, specifically Paul, to see what, um, how that jibes with what the Gospels are telling us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So redemption is for a specific group, right? Us here refers to Paul and the Corinthian believers he was writing to. This is where context uh, is vital when we're reading the Bible. And uh, as I mentioned before, um, there's many who, who have an idea that when they read the Bible, it's addressed to all people everywhere of all times. Well, in a sense it is. But the original audience is important. Who was this originally written to? Well, Paul is writing to believers, to Christians. To, so to say that, oh, well, look here, it says Christ redeemed us and anybody can read this. Well, I write a letter to my wife and in it, I tell her I love you with all my heart and it's found long after we're gone and someone reads it going, oh, this, I don't even know this Ken and he loves me with all his heart. Well, they've missed the context of the letter. It's to, it's to my wife. So us is what's important here in, in Galatians. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Aha. Isn't it amazing how that works? <laughs> oh, the Lord's marvelous. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, love requires an object. The bridegroom knows his bride, does he not? You men that are married, you knew your, who your, your bride was on your wedding day, didn't you? She wasn't an unknown potential bride, was she? 
She's not whoever shows up on the wedding day, who just happens to, well, you know, she got the invitation, she showed up, and I got to marry her. It's not like the Lord Jesus is standing at the altar saying, I hope she, whoever she is, will be at the marriage altar. What if, what if I'm left standing, you, you know, at, at the altar, and there's no one there? These metaphors that God gives us in his word are, are meaningful. When we think about what they actually mean, what they are conveying, and how they can work against these ideas we get that aren't exactly right. Okay, I believe this is my last one. Romans 8, 28 to 32. We, we can't get through something like this without touching, at least touching upon Romans once, right? <clears throat> Paul's writing here and he says, and we know that those who love God, those who love God, specific, right, specific group, because there are many that, that do not love God. Those who love God, all things work together for good for, here again, this is a phrase we want to look at, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, you know, here we can see this is addressed to a specific group, is, is it not? And it's, it's difficult for me to see how this group, the predestined, the called, the elect, refers to some unknown, anonymous group that, yes, that some theologians say, yes, there's a group that's going to be saved. We don't know who it is. It's not individual people. It's just that there will be a group. And it'll be those who respond to the call of their own uh, free will, their own volition, that, that God has nothing to do with it. And Christian, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm reading here in First uh, Timothy 2, at 3 and 4. It says here, for this is, ex this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. This, I've seen in other translations, the word um, desires is translated as commands. So if this isn't obeyed, then it's sin. Is that right? Is this not the, the same passage you asked about a couple weeks ago? Different passage, okay. Right. For Satan. So, but this one here appears that God is compared to Satan. But if you are not saved, it's disobedience. Which is unbelief. Yes, exactly. And. I'm sorry. Romans 12, 2. It's very similar. 
We're going to have a, an entire lesson that is going to address what we might call problem texts, those that seem to, you know, that we that, that seem to speak against particular redemption, and that, um, uh, in fact, it's our it's our next lesson. And as I'm looking down here, and in four minutes, I don't think we can we can address any of this um, properly. So. Uh, we have to look. We have to look at those things, um, and I know this isn't your question. I, 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 you made a very good point, and and you're correct in in what you've said about commanding to believe, and um, but we have to. We're going to have to look at these texts that argue against this doctrine of particular redemption. That's only fair, right? That the arguments that are given to us, we just don't dismiss them because. Well, my arguments are stronger, we, we might say. Um, okay, but there, there's an issue here that we have to recognize, right? Scripture does not contradict itself. So it can't say both things, right? Then it's confusion. And we know God is not the author of confusion. So we're going to have to look at these things and, and take them apart. And I think that a lot of it's going to be answered in context, um, like has been uh, uh, brought up before to a, a previous question our brother Christian had. Yes, Arturo. Uh, one text that I found kind of helpful to me uh, with particular redemption was the way Jesus addresses uh, both Judas and then Peter, right? When Judas is about to go do the betrayal, he says to him, what you're about to do, go do quickly. Um, then when he's talking to Peter, he says, uh, Satan is at your doorstep. Uh, he wants his desires to have you, but uh, take heart. I prayed for you. So when you come back, you know, you strengthen the brothers. Yeah. So it's like he prayed for Peter, but for Judas, he just let him go. That, that's, that's a good point. And that's one that, um, you know, does anybody, we, we only have a couple minutes. Does anybody ha else have any thoughts on that? That's... Uh, that's something that um, could be problematic. It's like, okay, is is the Lord just not dealing with Judas because you know Judas is not elect yet Simon Peter is? Is it a, is it a condition of their hearts? Is Simon Peter's heart? Not as wicked and evil as Judas's heart. Araceli. A lot of people say, "Once saved, always saved," and they say, "Well, you can, you can lose your faith." And a lot of people go back to um, the example of Judas and the belief, or what I've gathered or understood is that he was never a believer. So it, it, that's a whole other subject, but it goes to that. Um, and again, back to the belief. So, I mean, yes, he, God knows his heart, um, but Judas was brought into the fold for a particular purpose because he was supposed to, you know, deliver Christ. Yes. So. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, there is an issue of what we call false professors, right? Some, someone who by their own, own enthusiasm for, for the gospel 
or their own desire uh, for selfish reasons to be, to be saved or to be thought of as saved or, or as part of a, a church um, and then fall away from, from the gospel because it's something that uh, God tells us through his word. is It's not humanly possible to continue in this way unless the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. So Arturo's um, uh, thoughts on this are very good. Uh, it shows us two examples, and boy, we could spend a lot of time just just talking about that and what the ramifications are, how to approach this, what to, what to think of it. I mean, the Lord Jesus speaks about this man in such a way before the fact that uh, it's like this is something that's been decreed by the Father that will happen. So there's that. Okay, very good. We are, I think, at the end here. So next, next week, I want to get into uh, the problem texts that we must address. Um, I also want to speak of the fairness of this doctrine, the fairness of this doctrine and the, and the doctrine of um, uh, unconditional uh, election. Those two things, because that's another thing and I, that we often will encounter and I think will help us in uh, a manner of sharing the gospel with our friends, sharing what we believe, what, the, what we see the Bible teaching. If we can address or familiarize ourselves with, with these concerns. And uh, my friend JR, uh, Brother JR here asked, about you know what do we say to this question of unfairness and I thought about it and I thought well I could give a really quick answer but I think really we should delve into it in, in a deeper uh, manner and um, I don't think I'll be saying anything new to many of you when we talk about that but when we put it all together it I think it's very helpful to see all the arguments or all the explanations uh, together. At least that helps me. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, I'm thinking this and sometimes my mind doesn't take in everything. And if I put it down where I can see it and we can talk about it, then it's like, yes, yes, that helps. Okay, anything as we wrap up here, I'm going to close in prayer and upon my amen, you'll be dismissed in about a 12 minute break before our 11 o'clock service. So thank you for your attention and your interest and thank you for your comments and questions. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for um, the time we've had to look into your word. Father, we give thanks for the understanding that you have given us. We give thanks for the writers you've inspired to, to put these things um, down into uh, the scrolls and, and the codexes that we have become our Bible, Father. Uh, may we pay great attention to the scriptures, Father, that we may, may we delve into them, may we meditate on them, Father. We, we pray for the 11 o'clock preaching. We pray for Pastor Stephen, Pastor Mike, as they present uh, and officiate our worship service, Father. Uh, may it be a blessing to all and May you be glorified in this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.